Hello and you are most welcome to episode 179 of the Game Pit Podcast, a podcast about modern tabletop gaming. My name's Ronan and this episode is going to be a picking over the bones review episode. I myself today, I'm going to take you through six of the games I've been playing fairly recently. We've had a bit of a hiatus there. There's been a few things come up delaying recording, so hopefully there'll be a little rash of episodes in the next few weeks to catch up on what's been played over the last few months. So I'm going to kick straight into the reviews, and the first game up is Paint the Roses. 2022 game designed by Ben Goldman, publisher is North Star Games, is for two to five players, and the playtime is variable. I'm going to throw 60 minutes out as a rough figure, but very much player count dependent paint the roses we're in the world of wonderland and we all play together cooperatively as a team of painters who are following the whims of the queen of hearts and thematically we're going to fulfill her whims in her garden and in terms of doing that when we fulfill her whims we move around the scoreboard every turn she's going to move either quickly or slowly quickly if we haven't done what she's asked us to do and we have to stay one step ahead of her by constantly fulfilling these so there's a pressure there to always be achieving what we need to achieve so how are we going to achieve those whims it's all about laying tiles into a grid there's hexagonal tiles there's a grid the basic game starts with eight tiles already in play and on a player's turn they're going to select a tile from an offer of four it's called the greenhouse and from those four, select one and put it into play adjacent to at least one other tile. The tiles I'm discussing all have one of four shapes on them, which are the suits of cards. The theme of playing cards and Wonderland comes through sort of, the shapes are the four suits, you know, you've got a diamond or a heart, or what have you. And then there are four different colours. So you're going to have a club, purple club or a, a red diamond or a yellow heart. Everyone then looks at what tile you've placed and each connection it has, with every tile around it, it's going to be hard to describe <laughs> on a podcast, <laughs> and then checks their whim card. So everyone's got a whim card. It's going to show them what connections they are after. There are easy, medium, hard ones, and you choose which level you take for yourself. And the easy ones are all going to be connections of colour to colour. So let's say I had a card that said I want yellow to red connections. If someone puts down a purple tile, I can't make any connections from that. So I'm not going to put any cubes down and they're going to learn something about my whim. Now on your turn, you're tending to try and clue for yourself if you can, if there's something that lets you clue for yourself within the offer in the greenhouse. And obviously sometimes you're trying to work out to clue for other people if there's nothing you can do for yourself. Now let's say I did have yellow red and there was a yellow tile within the greenhouse, I can choose that one and play it down. I'm looking to put it somewhere. So of the six possible sides that can be adjacent, it'll be very rare, it'll be all six because the grid's not huge. I'm trying to put it somewhere that clues to everyone, look, my clue is yellow to red. So I put this yellow tile next to a place where there's three reds around it. I put three cubes on and everyone goes, the only connection that can be is yellow to red. Then each of these whim cards has got a point value on it. We're forced to make at least one guess each turn. When we all guess, and it's whim card is guessed correctly, the whim card gets flipped over, it gets revealed, look, you were right. There's a certain number of moves on there, and our painters move around that scoreboard I was talking about. We can then continue to guess if we think we've worked out enough about each of the other players and say, actually, I think we know that one. So we can guess again if we want to, and sure enough, if we get it right, they flip over the card and we move further along. 
and each of those players will draw a new card at the end of each turn. Now, after the first guess, you can choose to stop. Why do you want to do that? Because if any of the guesses you make are incorrect, the queen's speed is going to double. So she's going to be catching you quicker. Now, you start with a small head start over her. She starts with a speed of one. Again, in the base game, and we'll talk about some of the expansions that are included in a sec, but in the base game, the only way her speed is going to go up is as you score points. There's a white rabbit, and the white rabbit runs off and stops at a certain point. It's marked on the scoreboard. When you pass the white rabbit on the scoreboard, the speed of the queen increases by one. So once you've gone past the first marker, her base speed will be two, but her increased speed, when you've got one wrong, is going to be four. When you go past the white rabbit again, her base speed is three. Her increased speed will be six. Now, the highest value you can get on the whim cards is only five. So it becomes very dangerous to continue to, to, to push this and get guesses incorrect and double her speed because she will catch you up eventually. I'm going to put it back a second there because I was talking about only colour-to-colour matches. Now, the easy whims have got colour-to-colour matches and they'll only get you one or two points. And if you continue to score them all the time, the Queen will eventually catch you. The next level up is medium, in which you can either have colour-to-colour matches, as described, or shape-to-shape matches. So therefore, I might have, let's say, diamond-to-heart. You can have the same, you can have diamond-to-diamond, for example, but let's say I have diamond-to-heart. And then when everyone puts a tile down and it creates a diamond-next-to-heart connection, I will put my cubes on the board. And then people know I've got a medium whim card, so they're now thinking, oh, it could be that colour link or it could be that shape link. And of course, clever play down will allow people to work out what's going on and which one of those possibilities it is. There are hard whim cards, which are a lot harder, and these are the ones that will get you the four or five points and get your painters really moving around the board. And they can be colour to colour, shape to shape, or colour to shape. So it could be yellow to heart or purple to cub, whatever it might be. A lot of the game is about working out what value of card to take and how many risks we're going to take and how long we can leave it before guessing someone's card. So maybe a couple of players can take easy cards and we'll just sort of dink along, but at some point we're going to need to get those harder cards. But all of that is based on player count. And at the end of the day, can you do it? Are you able to win this game when it comes to a co-op? It definitely feels very varied until you start working some things out. And I've mentioned player count a few times. I've kind of been a recurring theme already in the first few minutes because the way you have to play to win and the difficulty of the game is very, very dependent on player count. If you're playing just a, a two-player game, you can just take easy and medium cards and slowball the game and keep... In fact, you kind of have to keep your painters moving quite slowly and keep the queen's speed down and just stay ahead of her And once you work that out, you're kind of going to win the game every time. Now, it takes a while. It takes a few games to get there. And even though I've described it to you, you're not going to sit down now and go, oh, all right, that's what we have to do. It takes a little bit to get into logic to consider, for example, how to set up the tiles on the board so that later on you've got easier clues to give and how to stop yourself from having a position that's surrounded by lots of tiles but it's still giving a lot of similar information out. I've got three clubs, three diamonds, three reds, three purples around that area. If I put one in, I'm still given those possibilities. You start working out, hold on. I don't want to put that one there. I want to put it over there to give a clue, but also set us up for later. And there is a skill in learning how to play the game. But like I say, with a two-player game, you can't take hard cards. It takes too long to work them out, and they kind of get removed as a possibility within the game, to be honest. When you play with more players than that, You can take the harder cards 
and the working out that you're doing, whether it's induction or deduction, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not clever enough to know. But the working out you're doing becomes more complicated and more interesting. However, it slows the game down. And what you'll find with more players also is that the final few turns are the pivots of the whole game because you need to score more points. So you will go on and you will kick the white rabbit on and you will get higher speeds with the queen. So you're coming down to, if the queen's at a speed of four or five, you absolutely 100% have to be getting these right. It's a, in a two-player game, you've got three turns in which you don't have to guess. So you, you can kind of save those right to the end of the game and be like, right, we can skip this because we haven't got a clue if you get into that situation. With four or five, it, it kind of just comes down to working it out at the end there. And also sort of in the mid to late game, working out who needs to take what value of cards, as I said, because you are going to need those jumps ahead. And there's a balance of risk. It's a very different game. The strategy is very different. And that's kind of shown because within the game itself, it gives you different target scores for different numbers of players. So the target scores are very much lower to show you've achieved well for the lower player counts. Now, within the box itself, it includes this Escape the Castle, it's called. They don't make it very clear what exactly it is. In effect, what it is is a bunch of modules. And they add on to the basic game and they give you additional ways in which you can manipulate some of the movement and manipulate some of the rules and additional ways in which you're going to have to do things to win the game. There are always five keys for each of these modules, and there are always rules on how to get those five keys. There are also always queen cards in there, and every time you get a key, you get a reset of the queen card, and that's going to be a hindrance against you, and you get to choose between two each time, so you can kind of guide what hindrance you've got. But also, each of these modules are themed around characters from Wonderland, so you've got the, the Alice module, you've got the Tweedledum, Tweedledee module, etc., etc., and you've got a helper card. And again, you can choose from two and keep one. And that's going to make the game slightly easier for you. So just those cards in themselves mix it up a bit. And you're trying to work against where you are in the game situation and what you're trying to do to achieve these keys to what card you want. And that's interesting. There's things like when you play with Alice, there's potions and cakes, which you can take, which you can speed up and slow down the queen. And the way you get the keys is that you need to get a key which is at speed one and two and three and four and five. And manipulating what speed is at. And when you do it, the whim has to be the same value as the speed, sorry. It's quite tricky. And it is, in fact, only possible at higher player counts. There's other ones where, like, you have to make uh, lines, straight lines within where you put down the tiles of certain either shapes or colours, what have you. And that's the thing that give you the keys. And again, some of these things are way, way easier on different player counts. But there's no guide within the book to say, look, this module suits two or three players. This module really you can't do unless it's four or five players. And it's within this and the slightly confusing presentation of, of these modules that I think the publisher has kind of let the game down a bit. You feel a little bit lost at sea. So you play the basic game, you kind of get to know it, you play at different player counts, eight, ten games, you're like, right, we'll play these modules. It becomes very confusing. And it takes a few games, for example, of the Alice one. We played it at two-player and three-player and went, we just can't win this. This is As soon as you go to four and five, we need to have hard cards, but it's impossible to do hard cards. Not impossible. It's very hard to do hard cards when you're playing a two-player game. So this doesn't seem winnable. So I've wasted a few games 
to learn that this is this is an incredibly difficult scenario. That and it should be noted there. You should be told that. And that was a little bit irritating. I will say that Ben Goldman is all over the BGG. His passion and his commitment to the game is very clear. But one of the things that he has said that keeps coming up is that this game was playtested hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, but usually by the same people, himself and his parents. And he keeps coming back and saying, oh, no, you can do this module two players. You can. Yeah, my parents did it. Your parents played it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. So if you have to play a game hundreds of times in order for something to be winnable, you probably should put a note in there in the game and say, look, this is really, 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 really tough. If you're feeling like an expert, try this, but probably play it at this player count for the first 300 times. I think you might get good at it. There was an interesting thing called Jeff Engelstein. He doesn't do Game Tech, obviously, on Dice Tower podcast anymore, given that that's sadly finished. But he's still doing Game Tech newsletters. And in one of them, I can't remember it was a Dice Tower or the newsletter I read, he was talking about the functions in the Expanse board game that he designed. And he was saying, I know that those functions are... I keep saying factions, weird factions. Those factions are balanced because I've playtested them hundreds of times. But I kept getting the same comments back that certain ones were more powerful. And then he said he had to think about balance because, yeah, they're balanced if you've played all the factions hundreds of times and you each know how to stop each other and where they're going and what cards are in the game. But actually, in your first 200 games, they're not balanced because these two factions are easier to play than those two. And he hadn't thought about that in his responses. And it actually meant that maybe for a better player experience, he should have mathematically wonked the factions to put them on a a more level playing field for a player for the first 200 games. And then said, right, if you find this is happening, these are now the rules, but don't use them yet. It's just something, I mean, to think about. It's something that made me think, and, and definitely when I was playing Paint the Roses, reading Ben's comments, I thought, right, great. Fantastic. It's winnable after a billion plays. How about I've played it a dozen times and I can't get anywhere near to winning it and I've probably played it more than most people will play your game. So it needs to be balanced out of the box. That's just a thought anyway. To go on to more positive things, it looks stunning. I did mention the artwork and the design. I am not a big fan of having games trays and loads of plastic within a game. This is one of the exceptions to the rule. The trays themselves are fantastic. They're beautiful. You open it up. It's a real wow moment. Everything lays in there. The tiles are nice. It's got all this artwork on there. The production itself is fantastic. The theme is fun and runs through it. The player count's a bit tricky. Maybe it's best at three player. So to sum it up and come up with a score, there's so much good in here. I'm thinking and I'm going over and we're working together and we're talking. It's so close to something fantastic. Sometimes I find myself a little bit lost in the maze. Higher player counts, there was lots and lots of talk going on. It took a long time and there was lots and lots of thinking going on. And I'm not sure that it was actually fun to play. We weren't sitting there laughing and giggling and everyone wasn't having a good time, but they were thinking a lot. And I want to play it more. So it gives you a sort of a different hook on why you might want to play Paint the Roses. In the end, I really like tough, puzzly co-ops. And that pulls Paint the Roses through to me right into a very high score. Now, we haven't really 
explain the scoring system for a while. Zero to 20 is John not worth playing. 20 to 40, possibly, but avoid. 40 to 60 is an okay game. And if you like the sound of it, then go and give it a go. There's nothing wrong with those games. 60 to 80, this is our screen out of 100, by the way, is a, is a good game. And definitely is worth a play. And if you like some of the things we say about it, definitely worth playing to you. And anything over 80, we say, is a very good game that everyone should at least give a go because it's got something about it or something different or something unique. And for Paint the Roses, following on the back of that, I've given it an 81. I think it's definitely worth a go. It does need an investment of time to really shine, but there's a unique, I almost said a pleasant experience, physically a pleasant experience, a real mental workout. So there you go, paint the roses. The next game is one that we've tiptoed around and you're probably sick to death of hearing about. So I'm going to try and go through it as quickly as I can, but I have so much to say about Ark Nova that I'm not sure how quickly I can get through it. I imagine you know something about the rules by now. It's got into the Board Game Geek Top 10. It is the hottest game of the last 12 months. But nevertheless, I will whiz through quickly. In Ark Nova, each player is building their own zoo. There are five card actions, and on each of your turns, you choose one of the card actions to take. And in the end, what you're trying to do is gain popularity. You're trying to gain money to spend to play cards to gain popularity, and you're trying to gain conservation points, and your popularity conservation points go opposite ways around the score track. When one player's markers cross, that's the end of the game. You do some end game scoring and then whoever scored the most points wins and sort of your conservation points, they kind of even up. All right. But you, you want to have lots of both. Put it that way. You want to cross as far as possible. The cards that come, they come in a row of, of five and where they are from left to right in the row dictates how powerful they're going to be. And you choose one you use. Let's say I've chosen my fourth out of five. That's now got a power four, which means it's better than if it was in slot two. I use it. I take it out. I shuffle the cards in and it goes back to slot number one. What the cards allow you to do is to take more cards in general, not action cards. Action cards are the same five. They're there all game, but you can upgrade them. They take game cards into your hand, which will allow you to either play them as animals or play them as sponsors, which will allow you to score points, make money, and run your zoo. The cards allow you to build buildings. Each player's got their own map with a grid on with hexes, which tells them where there's certain features, water and rocks and stuff, which are in their zoo, which certain animals require to be next to, and a shape in which they can put in all these buildings. There are many, many, many different buildings. There are basic shapes, which are hex sizes, and then you have to fit in amongst the rocks and the water and everything. And then there are also special buildings, which you can get fire playing sponsor cards which i talked about and that's a special action you can take the sponsor action you can also take an animal action in order to play animals down you must have a a building of an appropriate type and size in order to play animals when animals go in they give you special effects you can possibly mess with other players not the best part of the game but they will almost always give you popularity and in some way you are making your zoo better okay that's taking cards, building buildings, playing animals and building, playing sponsor cards. The last thing you do is association actions, which is kind of like the work placement, very small work placement part of the game, in which you're going to be uh, doing lots of different things. <laughs> you can uh, you can partner with zoos from around the world. 
the animal sponsored cards you play, most of the animal cards, sometimes have requirements that you might need a certain amount of links already to an area of the world, for example, to be able to play it. You can do that by partnering with zoos. Also makes cards cheaper to play, which is handy because money's tight in the game until you get much further on. The more popularity you have, the higher your income will be. There's other ways of making a few pennies here and there, which you may require in order to play your animals down. You can do university actions, which will give you symbols again, which you're required to play certain cards but also will increase your hand size from a base hand size of three when there's a reset to a hand size of five. We're going to come back to hand size. It's incredibly important. There are also conservation actions you can take, and that's mostly how you're going to push your conservation score up by adding to conservation schemes that are some base ones in play at the beginning of the game, or players can bring them into play by activating them, and you can join in. But the player-based ones have got a limited amount of time they will be in place. You need to jump on board them. They're generally going to want you to either have animals of certain types or from certain areas of the world in play in your zoo or release them back into the wild from your zoo, in which you'll lose the popularity of stuff, but you'll gain conservation points. So there's different ways to score points and get up lots of tracks, including a reputation track, which will boost up certain things. And as you go up tracks, there are bonuses you can take. And in general, that's how you're going to be able to flip your five action cards. There's only four flips available in the whole game. So you can't upgrade them all, but when you do upgrade them, that particular action card becomes more powerful. The last mechanism I'm going to mention is that the way that the game sort of resets as you're playing, there's no set rounds. Everyone just goes round and round and round and round and round, round, taking one action card each, but there are breaks within there, and that's driven by players taking actions, will drive up yet another track, the break track, and when the coffee cup on the break track, it's just a marker that looks like a coffee cup, gets to the end of it, you do this break thing and you must discard cards from your hand down to your hand size. Tokens that have gone on cards, you might have been affected by other players or you can double things up or have to get thrown away. You get your workers back, the association workers that like I mentioned with association, with association actions. The cards cycle a little bit. There's a huge stack of cards in the game. Some of them are available on a track. Your access to that track is limited by your card action and also by reputation. Again, one of the tracks I mentioned. And they will cycle through the ones that haven't been taken and then you will get your incoming money as per your popularity. Okay, arc and over. You're going to keep doing that till you score lots and lots of points and you are the best zooist ever. What do I have to say about it? Love the theme. I love the idea of running the zoo. I like the variety in there. I like that there's a multi-layered approach to running the zoo. The fact that you've got to get funding, you've got to get sponsors, you've got to look for conservation. It's just not about pushing animals into enclosures, it's sort of a more holistic look at what zoos are. Now, I'm not the world's biggest fan of a zoo. I wouldn't go rushing to visit one. There you go. But this is seems to be a much more mature take on that theme than just here are tokens, we call them animals, but they re could really be anything. There's, there's a lot more theme gone into the feel of this. The action system is fantastic. It is lifted directly out of Civilization A New Dawn, which it wasn't a perfect game, but I think was probably slightly underrated and didn't get enough attention. The FFG latest Civilization game, probably the fact it was the latest Civilization game as per the computer game series that maybe people just didn't pay attention to it. But the card system was fantastic in Civil New Dawn. It's fantastic in Arc Nova. It is lifted directly out of it. And there is an awful lot of this game 
that feels lifted directly out of other games. It feels like a hybrid where the designer has gone, oh, I like that, and I like that, and I like this, and I like that, and I'm going to turn them into a big, long game. Okay. Some things I didn't like. I find the spatial aspect of building on your own map no fun at all. I just find it fiddly. I find the layout of the maps difficult. I find that it makes it difficult for you to try and combo together to get to areas where you might want to put certain animals in play. And there's already enough restrictions in getting animals into play that adding the spatial aspect to me was one aspect too many. If I want to get certain animals into play, I might have to really have certain animals from their continent in play. I'm going to need a lot of money. I'm going to have to have built a bigger enclosure. Some of them have got a spatial aspect that needs to be next to things, which I can't build. They're set on my map where the water and the rocks are. So I have to adjust to that. And then the fact that it's difficult to actually fit things in and that you end up, oh, I can't fit that there with this tiny, fiddly little mappy thing. Some people I've seen love it. I did not like it whatsoever. You get bonuses for building on certain things on your board, but the bonuses are all over the place. Mostly people just rush for the money because money is the tightest thing at the beginning of the game until you've got your popularity up. I didn't enjoy the map aspect. In terms of the deck, there was just too much going on. So if I have, for example, I don't know, and these won't be accurate to the game because I can't remember them exactly, but let's say I had an elephant that I wanted to put into play. I already have lots of restrictions in place, but let's say I, I need two other African animals in play before I can do it. There are five continents... There are, I think, eight different types of animals. There are sponsors' cards mixed in within them. And I have a very limited access to cards. And more importantly, I have a hand size of three. So if I have that elephant and I require two other African cards for it to play, I just have to throw it away because I I can only hold three cards. So you go, well, don't keep those big cards at the beginning of the game. That's fine. No problem. So I'll slowly build up my zoo and I'll put some small animals into play that have got certain characteristics. Put in some reptiles, maybe a couple of birds. Look at what the conservation goals want because I'm going to need to do them. Let's say they all want me to have African animals, okay? Well, I've got to throw the African elephant away because I can't keep that one. There are so few cards coming through and I have access to so few cards. It's very hard to then build towards something. And let's say I do build up some Asian animals, I might never see a high-scoring Asian animal then after that. And then it becomes luck of the draw to whether I pull out the cards that suit what I've done in my initial stages of zoo building, or you do. Ah, people have played it loads of times. They're going to tell me, you can do this, you can mitigate that, push up your card. It's frustrating. The three-card hand limit is the worst rule in this game, possibly in any game. Okay, hyperbole. Possibly in any game, I was not going to say it. It just meant I had no strategy. I had no planning. I couldn't keep anything in abeyance and say, here's one or two things I might build towards. In this initial stages of the game, I, this is what I'm going to build towards. I know the conservation projects, but they're so hit and miss. You know, I need to have five, six or seven birds. I might see two birds in the whole game. I don't know. And you might end up seeing seven of them, so you're going to score those points. And I could never. There are reptile houses you can build, which will allow you to free up buildings and put them in and the reptile house houses them more efficiently which is really powerful and you might think I've got a couple of reptiles here I'm going to build a reptile house you should never get another reptile card there's an aviary the same works the same with birds 
There's petting zoos. Now, petting zoos can be absolutely lethal. It can be amazing because every animal we put in there, the first one scores you nothing. The next one well, scores you a couple points. So the next one scores you a handful and more and more and more. If you can get loads of petting zoo animals and build a petting zoo because they take up no space and just fill it infinitely, you're going to score a ton of points. Do I know if I'm going to see loads of petting zoo cards? No, I don't because the deck is enormous. It's not layered in any way. It's completely random how it comes out. Will my sponsors match that I happen to pick up? Or I mean, there is a, a card track you can choose from, but it's very limited. Will anything appear on there that matches to what I've done for the first two hours of this game? No, it hasn't happened. Oh, but those cards match what you've done the first two hours of the game. Oh, you can take them. That's giving you a huge boost. Oh. Or maybe mine has come out, but it's come out three turns later than yours, and therefore you're able to get yours done and finish the game before I can get mine done even though we were both set up exactly the same way for 90% of the game. And basically, whoever's card that fit came out first, decided who won the game. There's too many possible combos. It needs to be limited down. The combination of cards needs to be more clever than just hit and miss or more likely throw something out there, start up three, four, five different possible strategies and just wait to see which one lands in your lap, which might fit in with your sponsors, which might fit in with conservation goals. The point scoring at the end feels like a really flat finale. In fact, the whole ending feels like flat to me because suddenly someone's going to play a card, jump forward and go, right, that's it. Oh, well, I can't actually do anything while I go because everything requires you to manipulate your card actions and go through a few steps in order to actually get something into play. And like I say, the timing feels so rough because it's more likely luck of card draw than anything that's going to drive that you could finish it a couple of turns before. I would finish it with a big move. So I don't get my big final move in. So you're going to win after I mean, a two-player game, maybe two hours. Not Your first game will be longer than that. And more than two players don't play with more than two players. There's very little interaction. Why would you play with more than two players? I don't know. But really, the end feels flat. It feels like a struggle to get going. And then everyone's scoring accelerates towards the end. And it's just who manages to get those big hits in. Arc Nova, overall. To be honest, I think this was an overly ambitious and derivative first design. It catches the sheen of some of the great games that it tries to imitate, but it doesn't offer the gold that's beneath them, the heart and the soul. It really, an ad you come up with is like a novel written by an app after you've input a thousand novels into it and see what it comes out with. Yeah, it's picked up some of the great writing that's been put into it, but it doesn't really tie it together cohesively. I love the theme, I like the puzzle, but I find it an underwhelming experience. It finishes with a whimper where there's a dozen potential paths around the table which are unfulfilled, which feels unsatisfying, and there's no logical or reason behind why they haven't been filled. The finer details of game design are missing from Arkanova. And I know I'm swimming against the current here. There's a lot to like about it, but in the end, I, th I think that it's paper thin. The three card hand size, genuinely, this is not messing around, I'm not trying to be controversial. I rated it a 38 with the three card hand size. It's how much I hated that lack of ability to plan ahead. We changed it, we just doubled it. Just myself, yeah, that's what we decided to do. Do whatever you want. To six cards in your hands, and then 10 if you get the upgrade. To me, made the game much, much better, and I upgraded it to a 69. 
still had some issues with it, but a much, much better game when I am in control of what I can do and I can have a strategy and I can feel like I can set things up. Maybe I'm just terrible at Ark Nova, but it, certainly for me, not a great game. Speaking of great games, Azul has spawned a number of sequels, and the latest of these was 2021's Queen's Garden. Azul Queen's Garden. Designed by Michael Keesling, Next Move Games, two to four players, and 60 minutes long. This is about building a garden of hexes. You have a hex with seven hexes on it, around which you can put six more hexes of seven hexes, and you can end up with seven hexes of seven hexes that you fill up with hexagonal tiles. I'm going to stop saying hexes in a second. <laughs> You'd better fill it up, I guess, when the game gives you that. In effect, no surprise, you're going to be drafting tiles. Now, you can draft small tiles, which fill up the spaces, or the larger garden pieces. Like I say, you start with one in play, and you can take up to six more. The smaller hexes and one of the spaces of the larger garden pieces will have a pattern. It will be one of six different colours and six different patterns. And you choose either a colour or a pattern to take from an offer in the middle of the table. And let's say I chose yellow. Everything that's available in yellow, I must take it and I must be able to take it because I have a limited storage and I cannot take also any exact repeats. So, for example, if there are four yellow tiles out, but two of them are yellow birds, I can only take one of the yellow birds and the two others as long as I have storage available to me. The way that that pool works is that it starts with just four foot small tiles available on top of a large tile. When any go from that large tile, it gets pulled down and four more get put on the next one in the stack. When they go from there, four more. So you end up with more and more small tiles available. If any large tile gets all the small tiles taken off it, it flips over, it's revealed what's on there, and that now becomes part of the offer. And deciding what to take, obviously, when to take it and how to manage your storage is a large part of it. Sooner or later, though, you cannot just keep drafting during this game and you have to start placing these tiles. And this is all done mixed together. So I choose when I draft and then I choose when I place. And only when everyone has finished drafting and placing does the round end. So there's not a draft and then a place phase, which are discrete. When I wish to put anything into play, I must pay according to the pattern that's on them. The patterns go from value one to six and sort of the artwork of them indicates which one this is. A tree, there's only one tree, so therefore it's a one Bird's got two wings, therefore it's a value two. When you get up to like number five, there's five sort of leaves coming off the flower thing or the grass, whatever it might be. Not a plant expert. Let's say I do want to play a value five tile. I need to play five tiles. And they all must have something in common with the one I'm playing. So let's say I'm playing a level five purple. I can throw away one. It counts one for itself. And then for the other four, I must pay they can either be purple or they can be level five. And they can be the big pieces or the smaller tiles. And then I throw them away and they go back in the box until we need more if we run out of it. And then I put that tile into play. Now I can put it anywhere I like. What I want to do, though, is create contiguous areas of the same patterns and separately of the same colours, although they can intermix. But again, you can never join together two tiles which are exactly the same, which runs through all the way. Once everyone has finished drafting and placing, you're going to score a few points. And there are three things that score a few points. 
You're going to score like the three things I like. It's either two colors and one shape or two shapes and a color. And it tells you what's going to score each round. So there's a slight incentive to collect certain things each round, but that's not a huge part of the scoring. Also, there are features on each of these tiles in the center, the big tiles on, in the center of them. And as you surround them, you get an income of joker tiles. You start with three and these joker tiles count as a match for anything when you want to pay them. So they can be very handy. Now, it doesn't matter if you've got tiles left over at the end of any round, apart from the last one, because when the game ends, you're going to lose points for anything you have remaining in your storage. And it's not just like one point per tile, it's according to the pattern on them. So if you've got a level five tile left in your storage, it's going to cost you five points. Now, why would that be? Because there's a risk and reward here. It's much easier to get out the level one and two tiles, but they're going to score you fewer points at the end of the game than those high value ones, which you're taking a risk, they're harder to pay for, they're harder to get into play, but they will score you more points. The way the end game scoring works is you check and see each contiguous area you have of three things at least that share something in common. So if I've got four trees that are all next to each other, I will score four points. If I've got four six pattern things that are all next to each other, I'll score 24 points. If I've got an area of dark green that's got the one, two, three, four, and five on there, I'll score 15 points. So I'm trying to create these throughout the game for this big end game scoring, which is always driving my actions. Queen's Garden feels like Calico meets Azul. Calico, you're trying to plan how to put together these different patterns and what matches and what doesn't and what the best value is. With Azul bit, it's the drafting and also sort of having to pay to put tiles into play. Obviously, Azul very much more dictates the cost that you're paying in tiles. But there's definitely a link there to its older sister. I feel like Queen's Garden is more opaque than either. And every time I teach someone how to play it, my teaching wasn't great. I think so. That's <laughs> why I got my head around it now. I don't think the rule book's fantastic. I think everyone suddenly goes, ah, after a while, oh, I should have done this, shouldn't I? I should have done that. And get a bit frustrated because it is a tight, tense drafter. It lacks the different goals of Calico and, and the replayability and the, the different pattern. The pattern feels quite similar every time you play, despite the fact that you're taking different colours and, and different tiles. You're still doing very much the same thing. When you start playing it as well, you do start playing it very solitaire. It's very heads down. It's very, what am I taking? What am I trying to do? But I think as always like that, we start playing, as you get more used to it, you can start looking at what everyone else is trying to do, what they've got available in their storage and what I can take, which will mess with them. It does feel super mean in Queen's Garden to do that, though. You can really stimmy someone. You can block them. They can get in a situation where they're going to lose loads of points. So I would probably hold back on that. Unless everyone at the table was happy to play a game like that and also everyone was quite used to the game. There are issues very, very much with the colour choices. Of the six colours in the game... Two of them are green and two of them are purple. You've also got yellow and blue. But the two greens, especially two purples, are so close to each other that it's just an annoyance for no reason. Now, I haven't played with anyone who's colorblind. I cannot imagine that this is in any way colorblind friendly. There are patterns on the tiles, but you must know the colors as well. It's, that's The patterns are their own separate thing. And it's really a big, big mistake and, and thoughtless to have put them like that. And I mentioned the rule book before. That was the other big sort of 
<laughs> it doesn't explain the rules very well. It, it teaches you as if you really know how to play the game, which is makes it easy to miss out certain things. I mean, quite big things as well. How to pay for tiles is not explained very well unless you read the example carefully, and then it becomes clear. So I played this wrong a couple of times before playing correctly a number of times before reviewing it. Queen's Garden is also much heavier and trickier than I expected an Azul game to be at this stage. Azul has been a huge hit. It's crossed over. It's become close to mass market now. Its sequels have not pushed the difficulty and the boundary for me. I found to be easier to play than the original, easier to play well than the original. Queen's Garden goes in completely the opposite direction and makes everything a lot trickier and more frustrating and feels very much more like it's aimed at the gamer market than it is at the mass market, which I expected it to be aimed at. So in the end, that means it's a surprise hit for me. Queen's Garden is tough and thinky, can be interactive, but as I said, approach that with caution. You're mostly in the game fighting yourself and your own storage limits, so it's not hugely interactive, but it feels like an internal battle while people are constantly pricking you with needles or kicking you in the shins and annoying you and sort of just, oh, no, don't, don't. oh you took that one. Oh, no, how now am I going to have to rework out? I'm going to pay for everything. The sort of game that I enjoy, in other words, and for Azul Queen's Garden, I have given this a 77. We're going to move on to the fourth game of this episode, and this is Wise Guys. Designed by Phil Yates, published by Gale Force 9, 2022 game, three to four players, taking 90 minutes. It took me a while to write my notes for Wise Guys. <laughs> to be honest with you, I prevaricated, walked off, found other things to do, walked a dog I don't exist, because I found it very difficult to give out a balanced review for it. And the thing that ran through my head is you ever see Princess and the Frog? And a very underrated Disney movie. Dr. Facilier, fantastic out of the Shadow Man. And it says, on you, little man, I do not want to waste too much time in one of his songs. And that, I genuinely, that kept coming into my head of like, this is a waste of time. I really could review this in four words. But I'm going to try and do a little bit better than that. But this is, this is going to be a, a limp effort because I cannot generate any interest in Wise Guys. So give us the spoilers away. It's a reworking of Sons of Anarchy. I had Sons of Anakin, I never played it, I had to move on, move the house, I've run out of space, I've just far too many games. But friends of mine played it and they enjoyed it and I really hope Sons of Anarchy was better than Wise Guys because otherwise I've got some tough questions from my friends. In Wise Guys, you're in 30 Chicago, 20 Chicago, you're running a gang, you get a certain amount of orders, you have made men and acolytes or whatever they're called. You move them around a city which is made up of tiles. There are five set tiles for every game and six varied ones that come out. In order to issue an order and move things around, that's your turn done. There are various actions you can do on your turn. But you only do one thing at a time. When it comes round again, if your gang members are in a space in the city and they are alone, you can use it. If they're not alone, you can instigate a fight in one of two different systems of either chatting or actually fighting, and that is driven by what it says on the tile. That's not a choice for you to make. Whoever wins that fight kicks the other members out. There is a possibility to use guns and to injure people. Injure people going to hospital. They can be killed by someone going to a particular spot on the board, or you have to roll dice, see whether they come back to you or not. What you're trying to do in using these spaces is you're trying to get money to win. That is the be-all and end-all. 
the way that you get money mostly is by trading in the other resources in the game, which are guns and booze. And at the end of each round, you get a chance to secretly put a small amount of booze in for sale and you turn them over and the less booze that is for sale, the more money each piece of booze is available at the end of this turn. There are six turns in the whole game. When you get through that, whoever's got the most money wins. Now, selling that booze and using guns in battles costs you clout. It's just a thing in the game that everyone has between zero and four clout. Clout rules the world of wise guys. Everyone starts on one, two, three, or four clout. If you have one clout, you cannot do anything without getting punished. Every time you want to use guns in a battle, you lose clout. If you lose clout to go below one, you lose one of your made men. Getting your made men back costs you guns and money and actions and is a pain. And they're the ones that have got the best statistics for the battles that come to controlling spaces. In order to do anything in the game, you have to control spaces. So you don't want to lose clout. But anything that you want to do that is in any way interesting costs you clout. Then there's not enough clout in the game. You can't get enough clout. There's one space that's guaranteed to be in there that will get you one clout per turn. With everyone's trading, you're losing four out of the internal economy and gaining one in. And when everyone's starting with very few clout, then very suddenly that economy drains. And then everyone's like, I can't use guns. I'm going to lose my wise guy and I need him for this. I can't trade booze because also the amount of clout you have limits how much booze you can trade each turn. So I could be making... 40 bottles of booze a turn. I'm not going to be. That's a ridiculous number. And I can trade one a turn. It's incredibly frustrating. There are random events each turn. Some of them will kill your dudes for not having much clout or will cost you clout, which will make you lose dudes. And it doesn't give you any mechanism to get clout before this event kicks in. It says at the end of the round, you're going to lose this and this for having no clout. Well, how do I... I can't get clout though. I can't... There's nowhere here in this game for me to get clout. So... Why are you kicking me for something I can do nothing about? I'm already kicked in that I can't use guns and I can't sell booze, which means I'm going to lose the game. And now you're kicking me even... Why Why do you hate me, wise guys? Why do you hate... Why do I not... Am I allowed to... Even if the count worked, there are very limited spaces in the game. There's only a maximum of 11. One or two of them are just so specific, situation specific, that really you don't want to use them. In fact, there's only 10 because the other one you can't go to. You've got like... 28 orders could be issued in a round, quite reasonably, with 30 units available. People have nothing to do. You're just sitting there going, I don't know. Each space can only be used once per round. So someone gets in there, kicks someone out, or begin a round there by themselves, disaster, they use it immediately. It doesn't matter how powerful I am. It doesn't matter if I go in and kick them out. I can't use it again. It's been used for this round. There's only six rounds in the game. I've got nothing to do. We've had rounds of this game where people should look at their orders and go, I pass with half my orders left because there's nothing to do. The gangs have different powers and your made men have different like levels of power. So some gangs are much better at talking like the Al Capone gang and some of them are much better at fighting. We've had the Al Capone player sitting there looking at the board going, but there's only one or two places where you talk to win. The rest of them are all fighting and I am, cannot be strong in fighting because... The stats of my my main men are set that I'm good at talking. I can't go into any of these places and do anything. No, you can't. How about the green gang who can start fights for free? If you're playing with three players, there's hardly, there's hardly ever any fights because too many people start in a place by themselves. So they just use it immediately and you go, well, I could go there and start a fight for free. 
but they've already used it. There's so much wrong with wise guys that it's hard for me to, to get out my full feelings. I gave it a 25 and I'm looking at that now and I guess it kind of functions, but it feels a bit generous. Wise guys is awful. Don't play it. Three Sisters. Three Sisters is from Ben Penchback and Matt Riddle. It is a roll and write game. And it is themed around you're using the Three Sisters traditional farming method to grow three different types of vegetables. Those are pumpkins that grow around the field and then corn that grows tall and then beans that grow up the corn. This is a genuine farming method. Each player gets two sheets of paper. And one sheet is the garden and the perennials therein, which is driven into six different sections, which are all numbered. And the game is done by rolling six-sided dice. So each number on the dice corresponds to a section off your garden. You're going to start off that garden by planting in there. There are different boxes. And once you've, you've crossed the box off a column, you've started that particular crop and growing. And then by mechanisms of watering and rainfalling, which can happen in a certain round, any column that's got a cross in the bottom of it is going to then advance. And these columns are two, three, four, I don't think there's any fives in it, four tall. And by watering rain, you're going to get them up and they're going to give you benefits once you've grown them all the way up. So the pumpkins, which go around the border of your garden, when you fully fill them up, I'm going to tell you how you do this, but I'm going to, sort of going to tell you what you're trying to do before we, how you do it. When you fully fill them up, they give you goods, which you mark off on a goods track, which give you bonus actions and also give you things when you go to market. They're around the border, and when two pumpkins, which are adjacent to each other, have been completed, there is a perennial between them, which you cross off, which gives you a perennial action marked on the same garden sheet. The goods, by the way, are marked on your secondary sheet, which you keep track of other things. Perennials, as you tick them off, will give you actions as you go up. Now, there are various types of perennials, and they will give you actions which are directed towards different ways of scoring points and getting on in the game. When you complete a perennial column, which is much longer than the, the, the normal growing ones in the garden, you're also going to get a certain number of points. But you might get goods, you might get bonus actions, you might get to visit your shed, you might get to go to your apiary, you might get some fruit. These are all different things within the game which you can mark off and cross off and they give you various things and we'll get to what they do. For the corn, the corn goes up. When it gets to the top at the end of the game, it's going to score you points and also allows you to grow beans, which will grow with the corn and will also give you points. So pumpkins give you goods, corn and beans give you points. Those are the main two different ways of doing things. The way the game's actually played is it's a dice draft from a rondel. Now you have a start position on this rondel, there's eight actions on there. Number of dice gets rolled according to how many players are in the game. And then they are laid out on this rondel according to their numbers. So that all of the lowest number rolled will go in the next space along. Let's say they're ones. Then let's say you've got some threes, they'll go in the next space, no fours, and then a couple of fives and a six. So you'll have four action spaces which are filled up. Then each player is going to choose one of their dice to take off the rondel. That gives you two different things. Firstly, the number on the dice tells you which area of your garden you can take a plant or a water action in. When you plant, you start off columns. When you water, you advance columns. So you have to plant first and then you water. The action is dictated from where you took the dice from, which is according to, as I said, start position, in numerical order, they go upwards. And then the last space that was available this turn is where 
put the marker and you start from the next space around. So the actions that are available will advance around this small rondel and they'll all have their chance in turn to be selected. What can you do as your actions? Well, garden actions, plant and water is one of the things. You could actually double plant and water if you chose to. You can go to the shed, which I've mentioned. In the shed, there are lots, many, many different bits of equipment. And they have varying numbers of crosses required for you to tick off by taking shed or bonus actions. When you finish them off, they're going to do something to you. For example, they might make your planting more efficient. They might make your perennials better. They might give you extra goods when you go to market. Whatever it is, what you do in the shed is going to augment the strategy you have chosen for how you play Three Sisters. It's an apiary which you move up and get some goods from, some goodies from, and then you choose from different branching options. It's just another track which you're choosing to fill in to get stuff from. There's fruit. There's various types of fruits. There are fruit actions you can get from perennials and stuff, and bonus actions. And you're choosing which fruit it is that you're growing in your orchard because some of them will give you more goods, which I said give you bonus actions and you take it to market. Some will just give you points and some will give you a mixture there off. Once everyone has chosen an action, then there's an event at the end of the round. The event might be something like rain, whereby all of the columns that you've started in your garden are going to go up by one. It's a general watering. You might go to market. I've mentioned this. Whenever you go to market, you check how many goods you have. And then that tells you how far up the market track you are and what bonuses you're going to get back of whatever they may be. They're going to be perennial actions, apiary, sheds, growing things, getting goods, getting points. Other events might be a shed action, which again is going to be used to augment whatever it is you're choosing to do. You're going to continue this for eight rounds. You're going to draft the dice and then you're going to take the actions and then you can get points for everything. You get points for your corn you've grown, for your beans you've grown, not your pumpkins because they give you goods. You get points for perennials you've done, points from your shed, which will give you points for other things you have done or make the points you get for other things more efficient. You get points for fruit you've harvested and points for your apiary. I think I was going a bit mad after trying to think about what to write for Wise Guys. So instead of sort of giving my opinion, I wrote a story for Three Sisters. i see if you can follow with me here. Imagine you're going on a long journey. Okay, let's say maybe you're going on a space cruise. And you find out you're sharing a cabin with three companions. Let's call the companions the three strategies and three sisters. Okay, cool, cool. You got that, you got that. Good, 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 good. And you meet your journey mates at the port bar and you have a coffee and a cake together and they all seem nice. And first impression, you're like, oh, there's three different people I can hang out with on this journey. And then you go to dinner that night and you spend a bit more time with them and you investigate a bit further. It becomes clear that one of them has something about them. You're like, oh, I like you. The other two... They're nice enough, but maybe they're a bit dull. Maybe they both love golf and they want to talk about golf all the time and you're just not that into golf. Now, you find that the majority of your time for the rest of this journey has to be spent with the one person who you really get on with, which is fine. But the conversation repeats itself after a while and you keep looking at the other two and you wish that they were more interesting. And that while it's fine to spend time with this person, they're a nice person, let's not take it away from them. Given this four of you, you wish you could spend time with the other two as well, but they're just not as interesting and it's a bit awkward. And you're glad you've got your one friend, 
but you're careful not to put too much of a strain on it by going and spending too much time with that one friend because you'll ruin it. Because let's say we're on a six-year journey into the stars. Six years of one person is going to get a little bit grating. So you can't go back to it again and again. But every now and then you'll think of them and go, oh, we should go and hang out together. Have fun with them in small bits. And really you're mourning for the crack that never was because you wish the four of you could be having a good time. But it's just not possible because one of them is just so much better than the other two. And that's why Three Sisters gets a 53. Last review, Undaunted Normandy. Designed by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson. Publishers Osprey Games, 2019. Two players, 45 minutes long. This is a World War II themed game in which one side is going to be the Allies and the other side is going to be the Axis. It's going to be played on a modular map. According to a scenario, you set the map up. There will be objectives on there for each of the two sides. Both sides will start with a deck of 10 cards, which will have some units in there and not necessarily the same units for each side, depending upon the scenario. And the cards for each of the different units equals their health, but also their activation for the units. On each round, each player is going to draw four cards. They're going to have to Put one of those cards forward for their initiative value. Now, unlike in other games, initiative can be very important. And this is an interesting balance whereby you might be throwing away a powerful card, given you're only going to keep three and play three in a round, in order to get initiative, because it can be that important to you. However, sometimes it's too painful to throw away the valuable card, and you think, but actually they might have a more valuable card. And there's a lovely game of second-guessing and bluffing at the beginning of each round of Undaunted Normandy. The different sort of units you can have in order to move across this modular board and claim objectives, it's all spatial. It's all you need to get to this area. You need to kick everyone else out. You'd say, this is mine. And the different scenarios will give you different ways of doing it. It's all about moving. So how the units move on the board, they're represented by tokens, but they're activated by the cards in your hand. It's a day builder, by the way. Is very important. So the rifleman, when you play a rifleman card, it's one of your three cards in the round, can move. But when they move, it has to be into an area that's really been scouted. They can't get to new areas themselves. They can attack. The way that you attack is is that each other unit has got every unit's got defense value, and then how far away they are and how good the cover is in their area it takes what you have to roll on a d10 in order to hit them and if you hit them the player has to discard a card off that unit from their hand or deck and if they haven't got any that unit comes off the board now they might be able to come back into play because not all the cards of the units in fact only one of each unit is ever in play at the start of the game so they can reappear but you can sort of knock them backwards from any spatial progress they've made during the course of now, I said these riflemen can't move until an area's been scouted, so one of the other units you can have are scouts. And when you move them out, they can move quicker, and they leave scout tokens behind them, and then that sort of dictates where your infantry can go and lets your opponent see where you might be wanting to go as well. You've got leaders. You get companies within it. Of, uh, you start with A and B company, and then the C company can come into it, and you get leaders for each different company. And when you play the leader card... Of that type, and this is one of the powerful cards that I say you might want to spend on initiative. But when you play it, what you can do is you can bolster that particular squad 
by taking cards of that squad A, B, or C, which are valid and in the game because the cards that are valid to you are different for each scenario, and bring them into your deck and start building your deck up and making those more likely to activate again because they'll come around more often and also, of course, boosting the health so they're less likely to get kicked back to the beginning and back to your spawn point the next time you recruit and play one of their cards. What the leader can also do is they can activate any unit within their own squad, giving sort of double activations to uh, the card that's been played already so that you can do rarely but sometimes quick moves which can take your opponent by surprise. But like I said, they're also good for initiative. As you go into the different scenarios, you'll get different things available to you, like snipers, which can move fast and through not scouted territory, machine gunners, which hit very hard, and also can suppress units so that you need to spend an action just to turn your unit back over again so you can use it again, so they can slow down the map. Mortars, which can hit all across the whole map. They don't worry about distance, but they need to be set up before they can fire. There's also fog of war cards within the game which you can gain or you can give to the other players. And basically, they slow you down. They're useless cards. They're bad for initiative. They're bad for everything. And if you can give them to your opponent, it's going to slow down whatever it is they're trying to do. One of the great things about Undaunted Normandy is that though the maps are there and wide open and you've got different ways of doing things, they're quite small modern maps, by the way. This isn't a huge game. It's a quick playing game. You only ever have a hand of four cards. So you can never get overwhelmed by choices but the choice is always interesting as to what you're going to do and try to think about what cards I've got left in my deck and when will I be able to activate again and how do I not give too much away but I also don't want to sit here and be completely passive. And each round is a very interesting little puzzle within itself, within your bigger strategy. There's a very important question that I have to ask someone if they were going to play Undaunted Normandy against me. Are they going to play it in 30 minutes and we're going to see who wins? Or are they going to play in 60 minutes and definitely beat me because I'll run out of patience? Because <laughs> it's a 30-minute game. I love it. I've played it eight times now. I've barely scratched the top of Undaunted Normandy. Normandy. I haven't gone through all the scenarios. I definitely am very, very bad at the game, but I'm also really, really impatient. I like to try something, see how it goes, and then go, right, let's do that scenario again, and I might try something different. Or if it worked, I might just tweak it a little bit, or I'll react to what you're doing. If you're going to play to beat me in 60 minutes, you'll win. And that's my fault. But although each of those small rounds is very interesting within itself, drawn out over too long of a time and I start to get restless. And like suppression can come into play where you basically it's miss a go, one of your units. And if you start getting suppressed and it's hard to get across the map and you're just slogging, to me, this game becomes dull. Because... I feel like at an hour's play length, I could play something with a bit more strategy to it and a bit more going on. And I, that is far too critical. And people, some people will love playing Undaunted Normandy like that. They'll go like, yeah, you can really get into it and each decision is important. And you've got to like inch your way forward. It's just not the way I would like to play it. There's a lot to like here. Being epically bad at it, I think hasn't affected my rating. I prefer it as casual, but not thoughtless fun. My final score is very much up in the air. But in the end, I'm going to give Undaunted Normandy, for now, a score of 76. Definitely worth checking out if you like anything about deck building or a spatial game or a quick play and sort of fun. Let's shoot each other and roll the dice. Or if you think, actually, I'd really like to get into that, 
I'd really like to dig in and I like the thought of carefully crafting my deck and trying out strategies that are slow burn. It'll also work for you. So I think there's a broader range of people who will enjoy Undoubted Normandy than would be suggested by a World War II spatial combat deck builder. So there you go. It's been a big hit, doesn't it, my praise. But it got it nonetheless. That's it. That's the six games reviewed for this time out. Thank you very much for joining me. As ever, we are proud members of the Dice Tower Network. The Dice Tower podcast may have stopped, but the network is still going strong. Head to dicetower.com for lots of fantastic audio gaming content, as well as links to all their videos and all the other great things the Dice Tower are getting up to. If you want to follow us, please follow us at Twitter, Game Pit Podcast, or join in some chat on the guild on boardgamegeek.com. And if you want to email us, it's thegamepitpodcast.gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Apologies for the long break, and hopefully we'll hear from me again shortly. Music by E.